Section 3 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1. The Age of Discovery by E. J. Payne, Part 1. Among the landmarks which divide the Middle Ages from modern times, the most conspicuous is the discovery of America, by the Genoese Captain Cristoforo Colombo in 1492. We shall discuss, in the next chapter, the nature and consequences of this discovery. The present deals briefly with the series of facts and events which led up to and prepared for it, and with the circumstances in which it was made. For Colombo's voyage, the most daring and brilliant feat of seamanship on record, though inferior to some others in the labor and difficulty involved in it, was but a link in a long chain of maritime enterprise stretching backward from our own times through thirty centuries to the infancy of Mediterranean civilization. During this period, the progress of discovery was far from uniform. Its principal achievements belong to its earliest stage, having been made by the Phoenicians, Greeks, and Carthaginians, before the Mediterranean peoples fell under the dominion of Rome. By that time, the coasts of southern Europe and Asia, and of northern Africa, together with one at least, perhaps more, among the neighboring island groups in the Atlantic, were known in their general configuration, and some progress had been made in the task of fixing their places on the sphere though their geographical outlines had not been accurately ascertained, and the longitude of the united terra firma of Europe and Asia was greatly overestimated. In consequence of this excessive estimate, Greek geographers speculated on the possibility of more easily reaching the Far East by a western voyage from the Pillars of Hercules, and this suggestion was occasionally revived in the earlier days of the Roman Empire. Yet, from the foundation of that empire down to the 13th century of our era, such a voyage was never seriously contemplated, nor was anything substantial added to the maritime knowledge inherited by the Middle Ages from antiquity. About the beginning of the 12th century, maritime activity recommenced, and by the end of the 15th a degree of progress had been reached, which forced the idea of a westward voyage to the Far East into prominence, and ultimately brought it to the test of experience. These four centuries, the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th, constitute what is called the Age of Discovery. The 15th century marks its greatest development, and in the last decade of the century, it enters on its final stage, consequent on the discovery of America. This period was an age of discovery in a wider sense than the word denotes when associated with maritime enterprise only. It beheld signal discoveries in the arts and sciences, the result of a renewed intellectual activity contrasting vividly with the stagnation or retrogression of the ten centuries preceding. It witnessed the rise and development of Gothic architecture in connection with the foundation or rebuilding of cathedrals and monasteries. 
the beginnings of modern painting, sculpture, and music, the institution of universities, the revival of Greek philosophy and Roman law, and some premature strivings after freedom of thought in religion, sternly repressed at the time, but destined finally to triumph in the Reformation. All these movements were, in fact, signs of increased vitality and influence on the part of Roman Christianity, and this cause stimulated geographical discovery in more than one way. Various religious and military orders now assumed, and vigorously exercised, the function of spreading Christianity beyond the limits of the Roman Empire. By the end of the 10th century, the Danes, Norwegians, Swedes, Poles, and Hungarians had already been partly converted. During the 12th century, the borders of the Roman faith were greatly enlarged. Missionary enterprise was extended to the Pomeranians and other Slavonic peoples, the Finns, Leaflanders, and Estonians. The Russians had already been Christianized by preachers of the Greek church. Nestorians had penetrated Central Asia and converted a powerful Khan who himself became a priest, and whose fame rapidly overspread Christendom under the name of Presbyter or Prester John. Prester John was succeeded by a son or brother who bore the name of David. But Genghis Khan attacked him, and towards the end of the 12th century put an end to the Christian canate. In the 13th century, Roman missionaries sought to recover the ground thus lost, and Roman envoys made their way through Central Asia, though the Catholic faith never obtained in these eastern parts more than an imperfect reception and a precarious footing. Traders and other travelers brought the Far East into communication with Europe in other ways, and Marco Polo, a Venetian adventurer who had found employment at the great Khan's court, even compiled a handbook to the East for the use of European visitors. While inland discovery and the spread of Christianity were thus proceeding concurrently in the north of Europe and Central Asia, a process somewhat similar in principle, but different in its aspect, was going on in the south, where the Mediterranean Sea divided the Christian world from the powerful Saracens, or Mohammedans, of northern Africa. The conquests of this people, of mixed race, but united in their fanatical propagation of the neo-Arab religion, had been made when southern Europe, weak and divided, still bore the marks of the ruin which had befallen the Western Empire. The greater part of Spain had fallen into their hands, and they had invaded, though fruitlessly, France itself. Charles the Great had begun the process of restoring the Christian West to stability and influence, and under his successors, Western Christendom recovered its balance. Yet, the Saracen peoples still preponderated in maritime power. They long held in check the rising maritime power of Venice and Genoa. They overran Corsica, Sardinia, and the Balearic Islands. Nor was the domination of these vigorous peoples confined to the Mediterranean. In the Red Sea and on the east coast of Africa, frequented by them as far south as Madagascar, they had no rivals. Eastward from the Red Sea, they traded to, and in many places settled on, the coasts of India, and the continental shores and islands of the Far East. 
that branch which held Barbary and Spain was not likely to leave unexplored the western coast of Africa and the Canary Islands. It was on this coast that the principal work achieved in the age of discovery had its beginning, and although maritime enterprise flourished at Constantinople and Venice, there can be little doubt that these beginnings are due to the Saracens. The Moors, or Saracens of northwest Africa, must have made great progress in shipbuilding and navigation to have been able to hold the Mediterranean against their Christian rivals. Masters of North Africa, they carried on a large caravan trade across the Sahara with the Negro tribes of the Sudan. It is certain that at the beginning of the Age of Discovery, they were well acquainted with the dreary and barren Atlantic coast of the Sahara, and knew it to be terminated by the fertile and populous tract watered by the Senegal River. For this tract, marked Bilad Ghana, or Land of Wealth, appears on a map constructed by the Arab geographer Edrisi for Roger II, the Norman king of Sicily, about the year 1150. That they habitually, or indeed ever, visited it by sea is improbable, since it was more easily and safely accessible to them by land, and the blank seaboard of the Sahara offered nothing worthy of attention. The Italians and Portuguese, on the contrary, excluded from the African trade by land, saw in Bilad Ghana a country which it was their interest to reach, and which they could only reach by sea. Hence, the important events of the Age of Discovery begin with the coasting of the Atlantic margin of the Sahara, first by the Genoese in the 13th and 14th centuries, then by the Portuguese in the first half of the 15th, and with the slave-raiding expeditions of the latter people on the voyage to and in Bilad Ghana itself. The name Ghana became known to the Genoese and Portuguese as Guinea, and the negroes who inhabited it, a pure black race easily distinguishable from the hybrid wanderers, half Berber and half black, of the western Sahara, were called Guineos. Hitherto, the Portuguese and Spaniards had purchased blacks from the Moors, by navigating the African coast, they hoped to procure them at first hand, and largely by the direct process of kidnapping. While we know nothing of any voyage made by the Moors to Bila Ghana, and very little of the expeditions of the Genoese explorers who follow them, we possess tolerably full accounts of the Portuguese voyages from their beginning, and these accounts leave us in no doubt that the nature and object of the earliest series of expeditions were those above indicated. The slave traders of Barbary, until the capture of Ceuta by the Portuguese in 1415, may have occasionally supplemented their supply of slaves obtained through inland traffic by voyages to the Canary Islands, made for the purpose of carrying off the Guanchan natives. Probably, they also frequented the ports and roadsteads on the Barbary coast outside the straits. But the possession of Ceuta enabled the Portuguese to gain a command of the Atlantic which the Moors were not in a position to contest. Dom Henrique, Infante of Portugal, and third surviving son of King João I by Philippa of Lancaster, sister of Henry IV, King of England, became governor of Ceuta, in the capture of which he had taken part, 
and conceived the plan of forming a greater Portugal by colonizing the Azores and the islands of the Madeira group, all recently discovered or rediscovered by the Genoese, and conquering the wealthy land which lay beyond the dreary shore of the Sahara. The latter part of this project commenced by the Infante about 1426, involved an outlay which required to be compensated by making some pecuniary profit, and with a view to this, Dom Henrique subsequently resolved to embark in the slave trade, the principal commerce carried on by the Moors, over inland routes, with the Sudan and Bilad Ghana. Having given his slave hunters a preliminary training, by employing them in capturing guanches in the Canary Islands, he commissioned them in 1434 to pass Cape Bojador and make similar raids on the seaboard of the Sahara. The hardy, hybrid wanderers of the desert proved more difficult game than the guanches. For the purpose of running them down, horses were shipped with the slave hunters, but the emissaries of the infante still failed to secure the intended victims. Vainly, says the chronicler, did they explore the inlet of the Rio do Ouro and the remoter one of Angra de Sintra, to see if they could make capture of any men or hunt down any woman or boy, whereby the desire of their lord might be satisfied. In default of slaves, they loaded their vessels with the skins and oil of seals. This poor traffic was scarcely worth pursuing, and for several years, 1434 to 41, the project of conquering Bilad Ghana and annexing it to the Portuguese crown remained in abeyance. Yet, Dom Henrique was not a mere slave trader. The capture of slaves was destined to subserve a greater purpose, the conversion of Bilad Ghana into a Christian dependency of Portugal, to be administered by the military order of Jesus Christ. In Portugal, this order had succeeded to the property and functions of the dissolved order of the temple, and Dom Henrique was its governor. His project was, in substance, similar to that carried out by the Teutonic order in conquering and Christianizing the heathen Prussians, and the order of Christ corresponded in its function to the orders of Santiago and Alcantara, which were actively engaged in ridding Spain of the Moors. Dom Henrique's scheme represents the final effort of the crusading spirit, and the naval campaigns against the Muslim in the Indian seas, in which it culminated forty years after Dom Henrique's death, may be described as the last crusade. We shall see that Albuquerque, the great leader of this crusade, who established the Portuguese dominion in the east on a secure footing, included in his plan the recovery of the holy places of Jerusalem. The same object was avowed by Colombo, who thought he had brought its attainment within measurable distance by the successful voyage in which he had sought to reach the far east by way of the west. A curious geographical illusion served as a background and supplement to the scheme. The Senegal River, which fertilizes Bilad Ghana, and is the first considerable stream to the southward of the Pillars of Hercules, was believed by Arab geographers to flow from a lake near those in which the Nile originated, and was itself described as the Western Nile. The eastern branch of the true Nile flowed through the Christian kingdom of Abyssinia, and if the Western Nile could also be Christianized from its mouth to its supposed source, 
no insuperable task, for Bilad Ghana had not fallen under the sway of Islam, Christian Europe would join hands with Christian East Africa. The flank of the Mohammedan power would be turned, and European adventure would have unmolested access to the Red Sea and the ports of Arabia, India, and China. How far in this direction the infant's imagination habitually traveled is uncertain. His immediate object was to subjugate and convert the not-yet-Islamized heathen in the northwest of Africa, beginning with the Senegal River, and to create here a great Portuguese dependency, the spiritualities of which were, with the consent of the Holy See, to be vested in the order of Jesus Christ, and were destined to furnish a fund for the aggrandizement of the order and the furtherance of its objects. In recent times, Dom Henrique has been named Prince Henry the Navigator, a title founded on the supposition that his expeditions mainly aimed at the extension of nautical enterprise for its own sake, or had, for their conscious though remote object, the discovery of the sea route to India and the westward exploration of the Atlantic Ocean. It has even been stated that the town founded by him on the southernmost point of the sacred promontory, the westernmost angle of which bears the name of Cape St. Vincent, a town now represented by the little village of Sagris, was the seat of a school of scientific seamanship, and that his aim was to train up for the national service a continuous supply of intrepid and accomplished sailors, destined, in the third and fourth generation, to perform the memorable feats associated with the names of Da Gama and Magalhães. All this must be dismissed as illusory, and the picturesque title The Navigator is calculated to mislead. There is nothing to show, or even to suggest, that Dom Henrique was ever further away from Portugal than Ceuta and its immediate neighborhood, or that he had formed any plans for the extension of ocean navigation beyond a point long previously reached by the Genoese, or even thought of the route round the southernmost point of Africa as a practical route to India. A more truthful clue to the aims of his life occurs near the beginning of his last will, wherein, after invoking my Lord God and my Lady St. Mary, for that she is the Mother of Mercy, he beseeches my Lord St. Louis, to whom I have been dedicated from my birth, that he and all saints and angels will pray God to grant me salvation. The model of conduct and policy affected by Dom Henrique was the heroic and sainted French king who had flourished two centuries before. Louis, after ascertaining by disastrous experience the impracticability of driving the Saracens from the Holy Land in Egypt, had sought to convert the Sultanate of Tunis into a dependency of France as the first step in recovering northern Africa for Christendom. In some respects, the plan of Dom Henrique was easier of achievement than that of Louis. Islam having not yet overspread Bilad Ghana, it would be far less difficult to conquer and convert its undisciplined savages to the gospel than to drive a wedge into the heart of Mohammedan North Africa by the conquest of Tunis. Both schemes were laid offshoots of the crusading spirit. Dom Henrique's plan was among its last manifestations. As in the case of the later crusades, this plan was largely inspired by political objects. The Villa do Infante on the sacred promontory was destined to be 
the maritime center of the united empire of peninsular Portugal and Greater Portugal, the latter comprising the Madeira group and the Azores, together with Bilodgana and whatever else the Infante might annex to the ancient dominion of Portugal and Algarve. It was a sacred spot, for hither the Christians of Valencia had fled, seven centuries before, from the terrible abd Uhaman Adahil, carrying with them the body of St. Vincent, from whose last burial place the westernmost promontory of Europe thenceforth took its name. In 1441, twenty-six years after the capture of Ceuta, and the year after Terceira, the first among the Azores to be discovered, had been reached, a sudden impetus was given to the Infante's project. Antão Gonçalves had sailed to the Rio Douro for sealskins and oil. Having secured his cargo, he landed with nine armed men on the shore of the inlet, and after a desperate struggle with a solitary naked African, succeeded in wounding and capturing him. To this feat, he added that of cutting off a female slave from her party, and securing her also. Shortly afterwards, Nuno Tristão, a knight highly esteemed by Dom Henrique, arrived at the Rio do Ouro with a caravel, intending to explore the coast beyond Angra de Sintra in search of captives. Fired by the exploit of Gonçalves, Tristão landed, marked down a party of natives, and after killing several, captured ten men, women, and children, including a personage who ranked as a chief. After exploring the coast, with no further success, as far as Cape Branco, Tristão followed Gonçalves to Portugal, where they joyfully presented to the Infante the long-desired first fruit of his projects. Chroniclers dwell complacently on the joy experienced by the Infante, commensurate not to the value of the slaves actually taken, but to the hope of future captures, and on his pious rapture at the prospect of saving the souls of so many African heathen. Dom Henrique now sought and obtained from the Pope a special indulgence for all who should fight under the banner of the Order of Christ for the destruction and confusion of the Moors and other enemies of Christ, and for the exaltation of the Catholic faith. He further procured from his brother, Dom Pedro, regent of the kingdom, an exclusive right of navigation on the West African coast, and the surrender of the whole of the royalties due to the crown on the profit of these voyages. A new stimulus was given to the enterprise by the discovery that captives of rank could be held to ransom and exchanged for several slaves. In the following year, 1442, Gonçalves obtained ten slaves in exchange for two captured chiefs, and brought back a little gold dust and some ostrich eggs. In the next year, Tristão passed in his caravel beyond Cape Branco, and reached the island of Arguin. Fortune favored him in an unusual degree, for he returned with his caravan laden with captives to its full capacity. The success of the enterprise was now assured and in the next year it was prosecuted on a more extensive scale. The people of Lagos, the port where the captured slaves were landed, roused by the prospect of still greater gains, made preparations for seeking them, by way of joint-stock enterprise, on a larger scale than heretofore. The Infante licensed an expedition consisting of six caravels, the command being given to Lanzarote, 
receiver of the royal customs at Lagos, and presented each with a banner emblazoned with the cross of the Order of Christ to be hoisted as its flag. Lanzarote and his companions raided the coast as far as Cape Branco, shouting Santiago, São Jorge, Portugal, as their war cry, and ruthlessly slaying all who resisted, whether men, women, or children. They brought back to Lagos no less than 235 captives. The receiver of customs was raised by the Infante to the rank of knight, and the wretched captives were sold and dispersed throughout the kingdom. Large tracts, both of Portugal and Spain, remained waste or half-cultivated as a result of the Moorish wars, and the grantees of these lands eagerly purchased the human chattels now imported in increasing numbers. The project of Don Henrique had now made an important advance. Its ultimate success appeared certain, and the infantry resolved that a direct effort should be made to reach Biladgana itself, through which the western Nile rolled its waters from the highlands of Abyssinia and the Christian realm of Prester John. A certain equerry was commanded to go with a caravel straight for Guinea, and to reach it without fail. He passed Cape Branco, but was unable to resist the temptation of a profitable capture on his route. Landing on one of the islands near the bank of Arguin, he and his men were surprised by a large party of natives, who put off from the mainland in canoes and killed most of the raiders, including their commander. Five only returned to Portugal. Genis Dias, an adventurer of Lisbon, claimed about the same time to have passed the Senegal River, to have sailed along the thirty-four leagues of coast which separated from Cape Verde, and on the strength of having on his way picked up a few natives in canoes, to have been the first to bring back real Guinea Negroes for the Portuguese slave market. How far his claim to this distinction is sustainable is left an open question by the authorities. The wave of African enterprise was now steadily gaining strength. The Infante readily licensed all intending adventures, and the coast, long unfrequented by the European sailor, swarmed with caravels. In 1445, twenty-six vessels, fourteen of which belonged to Lagos, left that port under the command of the experienced Lanzarote, specially commissioned to avenge the Infante's unfortunate equerry, who had fallen as a proto-martyr on the African shore, carrying the cross and blazoned banner of the Order of Christ. Six of these fulfilled the Infante's direction to push on to the river of Nile and land in Biladgana. The palm trees and other rich vegetation, the beautiful tropical birds which flitted round their caravels, the strange kinds of fish observed in the waters, gave promise of the approaching goal. And at length the voyagers beheld the sea discolored by the muddy waters of the Senegal to a distance of two leagues from land. Scooping these up in their hands and finding them fresh, they knew that their object was attained, sought the river's mouth, anchored outside the bar, launched their boats, captured a few hapless negroes, and returned to Don Henrique, picking up more captives on the way, with the welcome intelligence that his desires were at length accomplished, that the river of Nile had been reached, and the way opened to the kingdom of Prester John. In the nineteenth year of his efforts to reach Biladgana, 
the Infante thus saw them at length crowned with success, and his licenses pursued the trade thus opened up so vigorously that in 1448, seven years after the capture of the first natives, and three years after the Senegal had been reached, not less than 927 African slaves had been brought to the Portuguese markets, the greater part of whom, it is unctually observed by Zurada, were converted to the true way of salvation. The rich field of commerce thus entered upon was rapidly developed by the continued exploration of the coast. We have seen that even before the Infantis emissaries anchored at the mouth of the Senegal, a navigator standing further out to sea claimed to have passed it and reached Cape Verde. The year in which the Senegal River was actually reached, 1445, was marked by another important advance. The Venetian captain Cadamosto and the Genoese Antonio de Nola, both in the Infantis employ, passed beyond Cape Verde and reached the Gambia River. The Infanti began also in this year the colonization of São Miguel, which had been reached in the previous year, and was the second among the Azores Islands in order of discovery. In 1446, Cadamosto and Antonio de Nola not only discovered the four Cape Verde Islands, Boa Vista, Santiago, São Felipe, and São Cristóvão, but passed Cabo Rocho, far beyond the Gambia River, and coasted the shore to an equal distance beyond Cabo Rocho, discovering the rivers Santana, São Domingos, and Rio Grande. From the coast south of Cape Verde, new wonders were brought back to Portugal. The infantis' eyes were gladdened by beholding tusks of the African elephant and the living African lion. How far southward along the coast the infantis' licenses had actually sailed at the time of his death, 1460, is uncertain. Could the distances reported by them, as expressed in nautical leagues, be accepted as trustworthy evidence, they must have passed the Bizagos and Delos Islands, and here reached the latitude of Sierra Leone, only eight degrees north of the equator. But the estimates given in the chronicle, founded only on dead reckoning, are in excess of actual geographical distances. We doubt whether before Dom Henrique's death, Portuguese seamen had passed the tenth parallel of north latitude, and it is known that in his last years, the complete discovery and colonization of the Azores group chiefly occupied his attention. Dom Henrique's will, which specifies churches founded by him in each of the Azores, in Madeira, Porto Santo, and Deserta, as well as in various towns of Portugal, and on the opposite coast of Morocco, speaks of the great dependency of Guinea, which he had secured for the Portuguese crown in general terms only. He looked on it as a certain source in the future of large ecclesiastical revenues. These, following a common practice of the age, were settled by him with the Pope's assent on the military and religious order of which he was governor. Guinea was to be parceled into parishes, each having a stipendiary vicar or chaplain, charged forever with the duty of saying one weekly mass of St. Mary for the infantis soul. We find nothing about the circumnavigation of Africa or the extension of the enterprise to the Indian Ocean. Down to his death, he probably expected that a junction with the Christians of Abyssinia and the East would be ultimately effected by ascending the Western Nile or Senegal River to its sources. 
which were universally supposed to be near those of the Egyptian Nile. This expectation, however, he associated with the remote future. His present policy was to secure Guinea as a dependency for Portugal, and the rich appanage for the Order of Christ, by the construction of forts, the establishment of parochial settlements, and the foundation of churches. The economic character of the Infantis enterprise was felt, even in his lifetime, to be so little in accordance with the character which history demands for its heroes, that a contemporary chronicle of the Guinea expeditions, compiled by one Cerveira, is known to have been suppressed and replaced by the garbled work of Zurara, whose object it was to write the Infantis panegyric as a great soldier and eminent Christian, and as the patriotic founder of the greater Portugal, which posterity would never cease to associate with his name. As the enterprise assumed larger proportions, the pretense that the negro was captured and shipped to Portugal for the salvation of his soul was abandoned. Even more valuable for commercial purposes than negro slaves were the gold and ivory in which the tribes south of the Cumbia River abounded. The Portuguese, who were now expert slave raiders, found that the reward of their enterprise was best secured by disposing of their prey to the chiefs of other tribes, who were ready to give gold and ivory in exchange. The Guinea trade, which assumed this character almost exclusively soon after Dom Henrique's death, was now farmed out to the highest bidders. Afonso V, in 1469, granted it to one Fernão Gomes for five years, at an annual rent of five hundred cruzados, on condition that the grantee should in each year discover a hundred leagues of coast, or five hundred leagues altogether during the term. Pursuant to these conditions, Gomes pushed the task of exploration vigorously forward. His sailors rounded Cape Palmas, the southwestern extremity of North Africa, whence the coast trends to the northeast past the Ivory Coast, and reached what has ever since been known as the Gold Coast, in a special sense the land of the Fantee, having as a background the mountains of Ashanti. And here, a few years later, João II founded the fort of São Jorge da Mina, the first great permanent fortress of the Portuguese on the Guinea coast. Before the death of Afonso V, 1481, his subjects had coasted along the kingdoms of Dahomey and Benin, passed the delta of the Niger, crossed the Bight of Biafra, where the coast at length bends to southward, discovered the island of Fernando Po, followed the southward trending coastline past Cape Lopes, and reached Cape St. Catherine, two degrees south of the equator. These explorations proved that the general outline of southern Africa had been correctly traced on Italian charts dating from the preceding century, and the last steps in the process of exploration, which finally verified this outline, were taken with extraordinary rapidity. In 1484, Diego Cão reached the mouth of the Congo, sailed a short way up the river, and brought back with him four natives, who quickly acquired enough Portuguese to communicate important information regarding their own country and the coast beyond it. Returning with them in 1485, he proceeded some distance to the southward, but made no extensive discoveries. Nor was it until the following year that Bartolomeu Dias, charged by Juan II with the task of following the continent to its southern extremity, 
passed from the mouth of the Congo two degrees beyond the southern tropic, and reached the Sierra Parda, near Angra Pequena. From this point, he resolved to stand out to sea, instead of following the shore. Strong westerly gales drove him back towards it, and he, at length, reached Mossel Bay, named by him Baía dos Vaqueiros, from the herdsmen who pastured their flocks on its shore. He was now on the southern coast of Africa, having circumnavigated the Cape of Good Hope unawares. From this point, Gias followed the coast past Algoa Bay, as far as the Great Fish River. Its trend being now unmistakably to the northeast, he knew that he had accomplished his task. Returning towards the Cape, to which he gave the name Cabo Tormentoso, or Cape Tempestuous, he rounded it in the reverse direction to that which he had at first intended, and returned to Portugal. End of section 3